Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet. This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ plus sports and recreation organizations in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Laura. I'm on the board of Team DC. I've played and loved sports my entire life, and I've played with the DC Furies and Rogue Darts. And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team DC and a diehard sports fan. I play with many of the Team DC sports member leagues, including the DC GFFL, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, Kara Bowling, and recently the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. And I also do a little drag on the side. We hope you enjoy this week's trip under the bleachers. Welcome everyone, Laura and Gabe here. It's September 14th, and you're listening to episode 13 of Under the Bleachers. This week, it's Laura's turn to choose our topics. For our discussion of all things queer, she chose new standards for LGBTQ plus representation in movies, competing for best pictures at the Oscars. For our conversation of all things sports, we'll talk about the return of the NFL. And for the intersection of sports and queer, we'll be remembering Mark Bingham. After that, we're going to share our interview with Team DC member club, Rogue Esports. But first, it's time for our Team DC update. The next meeting of the Sports Council will take place virtually over Zoom on Monday, September 21st. The Sports Council is made up of representatives from all of the Team DC member clubs, and we strongly encourage everyone to attend. If you are a member or organizer of a gay sports or recreation organization and are interested in joining the Sports Council as a member club of Team DC, you can learn more at teamdc.org and contact the chair of the Sports Council, Team DC Vice President Laura Freyer, that's me, at laura at teamdc.org. And as we have told you, the Team DC Challenge Cup is coming back October 17th. Registration begins next Monday, September 21st, and teams will have opportunities to start earning points for the event as soon as registration opens. Get your team of five organized and be ready to register September 21st and start earning points to help win this year's Challenge Cup. Of course, Laura and I will keep bringing you new episodes of Under the Bleachers every Monday at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on your favorite podcast apps, including Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share it with a friend. Okay, let's get started. Here's Laura with our first topic in this week's trip under the bleachers. Okay, my topic in the world of all things queer this week is new standards for LGBTQ plus representation in movies competing for best picture at the Oscars. Over the years, the Academy Awards has skewed almost entirely white and has shut women out of certain categories almost altogether, like the best director category in which three women have been nominated in the history of the ceremony. Following the 2016 ceremony at which no non-white people were nominated in acting categories, dubbed Oscars So White, then president of the Academy, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, called for more diversity. In response, more women and people of color were added to the ranks of eligible voters. In addition to the membership initiative, the Academy has undertaken an initiative it calls Academy Aperture 2025. As part of that initiative, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences announced last week new representation and inclusion standards that will be enforced in order for a movie to be eligible in the best picture category. 
For the 94th and 95th Oscar ceremonies scheduled for 2022 and 2023, a film will submit a confidential Academy Inclusion Standards form to be considered for Best Picture. Beginning in 2024 for the 96th Oscars, a film submitting for Best Picture will be required to meet inclusion thresholds by meeting two of the four standards. The standards relate to representation of underrepresented racial or ethnic groups, basically non-white groups, and underrepresented groups. These include LGBTQ plus people, as well as women and people with cognitive or physical disabilities or who are deaf or hard of hearing. The standards are as follows. Standard A relates to on-screen representation themes and narratives. To achieve standard A, a film must meet one of the following categories. Either at least one of the lead actors or significant supporting actors is from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group, or at least 30% of all actors in secondary and more minor roles are from at least two underrepresented groups, that's where the LGBTQ plus community comes in, or C, the main storyline theme or narrative of the film is centered on an underrepresented group. There are three other standards that the Academy put forth. The second relates to creative leadership and project teams. So this is essentially requiring that your department heads, like your casting director, cinematographer, composer, et cetera, will represent either a racial minority or one of the underrepresented groups. Standard C relates to industry access and opportunities. To meet this standard, the group that makes the film can offer internships or other industry opportunities to members of racial minority groups and or underrepresented groups such as the LGBTQ plus community. And then standard four is what they call audience development. To achieve standard four, the film must meet the following criteria. The studio and or film company must have multiple in-house senior executives from among underrepresented groups, which must include which must include individuals from underrepresented racial or ethnic groups on their marketing, publicity, and or distribution teams. So the whole scheme is pretty complicated, but there are obviously a lot of different ways that a movie can qualify, and it's certainly not going to be an impossible hurdle to ask any movie to overcome. I do think, however, it's safe to assume that most Best Picture winners to date would not have been eligible for the award if these standards had been adopted earlier. So Gabe, do you have any thoughts on what the Academy is doing? Do you think they've gone too far to satisfy their critics? I have really mixed feelings about the new standards that are going in. I see where they're going and I get that they're trying to increase the representation, but kind of, I don't know, it seems to me now that they're kind of pandering and just saying, okay, well, let's just say that we're doing these things. And um, I don't know, to, to me, it's kind of hard because you're going to have like these roles that now are just going to be put in to fit a certain criteria so that the movie can be nominated for best picture right so it's, it's like, like a, it's like a box checker right oh like, yeah so it's like oh we we need a character who is black and a woman okay sweet check check so i i hear you and i mean i share some of those concerns but i do think that they were thoughtful a little you know a little bit more thoughtful they didn't take the completely easy way out because the standard is that either your main character has to be representative or 30% of your secondary characters, right? So it's not like you can just put one, you know, Mexican guy in a very small secondary role and say that you've checked that box. It has to be more than just that. 
So I do think that they, this is clearly not just a, you need to have a black director or a black actor or a black, you like, it's not like they're saying, check the box, put a black person anywhere and you're in. I think they did a little bit of a better job than that, but, but I hear what you're saying. It does, anytime there's standards like this, where you're talking about somebody has to be here or 30% have to be here, you just open yourself up to the same criticisms about quotas that we've always heard relating to like, the so-called reverse racism problem, you know, like in education and things like that. Yeah. If you look at, for example, Shape of Water, did you see it? 2017? Yes. Okay. So it won uh, Best Picture, Best Director. Um, and it, if you think about it, it checked all the boxes without being, uh, having these standards on there. So you had a lead character who's a female, was also deaf, and also you have a uh, Mexican director. So yeah, I mean, it was yeah, already- but, but the thing is, right, is like, so you have that and then you have Moonlight. But yeah. other than that, try to name me a best picture winner in the history of the Academy Awards. And there's been over 90 of them. That's true. That, right, so, you know, it, just saying that like a film in the past has naturally met these criteria, that actually is the definition of the issue, right? It's that there are so few that naturally hit these criteria. So the idea of the criteria is try to get more of those into the best picture conversation because there are so few. Since I'm wondering too, like how are they kind of going to enforce these? Like are they trying to, in, you know, increase the number of, you know, minorities and LGBTQ plus people in like film school and getting more writers to get out there and, you know, doing more educational classes and stuff like that to get people into these technical roles and, you know, studying cinematography, getting more people of diverse backgrounds to start, you know, getting into the movie making process. Yeah. That's so as or... I was like sort of mentioning, you know, you have to meet two of the four and one of them relates to your actors and your storylines, but the other three are more like what you're talking about. One is creative leadership and project team. So you satisfy that by having diversity in your casting director, in your cinematographer, in your composer, in your costume designer, in your editor, in your sound editor, basically, you know, the heads of your various behind the scenes departments. If you have diversity there, that's one of the ways you can um, meet the criteria. And then there is a standard called industry access and opportunity. And in that one, you can meet it by your film, your distribution or financing company offering paid apprenticeships or internships to people in underrepresented groups or having training or work opportunities for below the line skill development to people from underrepresented groups. So, I mean, honestly, they, they did think about exactly what you're saying, right? Yeah, they, then they've created different pathways um, to hopefully increase diversity at all different um, levels in all different places. And so, so I, so, I mean, I hear, I hear all the things you're saying, but I have to say, this is one of the most comprehensive and well thought out plans like this that I've ever seen. I, I'm not sure I fully support it because I just, it's difficult when you think about the fact that essentially the way they're going to quote unquote enforce this is that you're going to have to self-report on a form when you submit your movie to be eligible for best picture you have to fill out a diversity form and say which ones you qualify for um yeah and there's something that feels a little off about that but maybe we should get used to you know having 
questions like that and making people fill out these forms like obviously our society has not completely integrated itself on its own so maybe that's the new normal that we should get used to until until we actually do have full integration i don't know yeah and i think that it's it's starting the conversation and you're probably going to start getting these like giant powerhouse movie houses that are like now or production companies now thinking okay here are the standards what are we going to do now to one fix the problem of what's going on and the the, the uh the backlash they've been getting from all these award shows just being predominantly you know white americans getting nominated and getting awarded and i mean they, they've been making jokes about it for what the past three or four oscars seasons yeah. um so yeah it, it's good to get the conversation going good to you know to see that the uh the Academy is actually taking note of the criticism and actually doing something about it. And hopefully this comes out in a very positive light and we actually get, you know, different stories coming out and more people getting involved from different backgrounds. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, it's unfortunate that you have to use this methodology, which is essentially saying to the people in power and the people with money, if you want an award, you have to do this. You have to increase diversity. But what they're hoping for is that the ultimate result of that is that we're going to start getting more diversity and more diverse talent in the stories, in the writing, what we see on screen. And ultimately, if that's how it plays out, I think, you know, so you got to make some rich studio executives, even if they are doing it for the wrong reasons, they're hiring diverse people and thinking about increasing diversity at their company for the wrong reasons, because they're just doing it because they want to win an award. But if the ultimate result is that we get to enjoy the benefit of a more diverse art artistic community, I say great. No, oh, yeah, totally agree. I mean, um, it'll be good. Do you think that that this is going to result in more LGBTQ plus um, storylines in major motion pictures? I think so. I mean, we've already seen kind of in the past of how just because you have a quote unquote gay or lesbian storyline, it's not going to negatively affect affect how the movie reacts, you know, with the box office. Uh, we saw, you know, with, uh, was it Call Me By Your Name? Yeah. It was a gay storyline and people were like, okay with it. You know, we had, I mean, that's, that's always been the, I think we talked about it before, like the, the argument where it's like, oh, if I have a gay, lesbian or a trans story on the big screen, are people going to actually want to watch this movie? Is it going right. to be worth it? Are we going to, you know, we're investing so, like all these millions of dollars in this movie. Uh, is it going to have a wide enough watch audience? It? Yeah, yeah, it's going to have enough know. wide a wide enough appeal to make me my money. Like, and yeah. I think we've had a couple of quote unquote gay movies that have been kind of blockbusters and are starting to move people in terms of money made and starting to move people towards making more of those. But I think what we're aiming for here, right, is to start having gay and lesbian storylines that aren't love stories. Yeah, because, right. Showing because people that like <laughs> we're normal everyday people that can do things. Right, like <laughs> an LGBT community is not. Every story is not about who you fall in love with or how you fall in love. Right. Um, it'd be nice to see like some like buddy movies, like you know, LGBTQ buddy movies like you know you have like stepbrothers or like the hangover it was so hugely <laughs> popular but that's just like a buddy movie right that's not a romantic movie um and you know i'd love to see a movie like that be made with a group of gay friends yeah because you normally see i mean more in like the small screen on tv 
kind of where someone has like the the uh, LGBTQ plus backstory that you, they really don't like delve into. But um, yeah, it's, it'd be great to see it on like the big screen and in the movies. Yeah, I hope that these these standards, whether that, you know, I think they'll probably need to be adjusted and evolve as time goes on and as they try it out. But I, if the ultimate result is that we start getting more um, LGBTQ plus representation in the storylines and in the actors and what we get to see at the movies, I will be very happy because I love movies and I'd love to see more diversity in my stories. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a great way to get, you know, to widen the net and bring out more interesting stories that are out there and get more people involved and give people a shot. Yeah. A chance. And we never know, you know, what amazing movie makers are out there right now that are trying to work their way up on the ladder and try to get their foot in the door. So hopefully Absolutely. this is positive and we get some awesome movies, you know, so we can go, you know, when we finally get a vaccine and can go to see a movie. <laughs> right. Until then day. we just have to watch Disney plus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Laura and Gabe give it two thumbs up for effort. Two thumbs up. Good job. Uh, the Academy. And we'll see how it plays out, but we at least like the effort. Um, do you want to move on to sports? Sure. Okay. So what do you have up for sports uh, this week? All right. So my sports topic this week is the return of the NFL. Just like that, the NFL season is officially upon us. Last Thursday, the Chiefs and Texans kicked off the 2020 season in Kansas City, and the defending world champions wasted no time picking up where they left off. Kansas City gave up a touchdown to start off the game and then proceeded to rack up 31 unanswered points. Patrick Mahomes and company look like they are ready to defend their title and have an improved running game, having added rookie running back Clyde Edwards-Alaire, who rushed 25 times for 138 yards and a touchdown on Thursday. Ultimately, the Chiefs won the game 34-20. to But it wasn't all fun and games. 17,000 fans attended the game despite the COVID-19 pandemic, although the small crowd and the masks worn on the sidelines were an unmistakable reminder that we are still in the middle of a pandemic. The game also honored two national anthems, both the Star-Spangled Banner and Lift Every Voice and Sing, commonly known as the Black National Anthem. The Houston Texans elected to not take the field for either the national anthem or the black national anthem. Lift Every Voice and Sing played first, and the Texans left the field for the locker room. The Chiefs, meanwhile, stood arm in arm on the field during the song. After both of the anthems played, the Texans emerged from the tunnel and were met by boos from fans. Then, players and coaching staff from the Texans and the Chiefs joined arms in the center of the field for what they called a moment of unity. Please join us in a moment of silence dedicated to the ongoing fight for equality in our country, the announcer at the stadium stated ahead of the moment. The booing of the fans continued. And just like that, the NFL is back. <laughs> <laughs> so Gabe, are you surprised that people are going to football games during the COVID pandemic? And are you surprised that people who are going seem to be a little racist? Uh, that doesn't surprise me, but um, no, this is crazy. Why? First off, yes, we're still in a pandemic. Hundreds of thousands of people are still dying or sick. What are you doing out at a game? When I saw this headlines, fans booed, 
I was like, what are they talking about? Right? Like I'm picturing people in a bar somewhere like, yeah. how do the players know fans? What are fans? I was like, what football were they? Is this New Zealand? Is this like in Europe? Where are we? Blew my mind. Okay. Putting that aside, because I do remember we talked about a few weeks ago how the NFL commissioner had said he did not want to make a rule about whether fans could attend the games and he was going to leave it up to the individual arenas. And so here we are keeping it classy in Kansas city with 17,000 people in a football stadium. Now in fairness, 17,000 is a lot smaller than the crowd could have been, but still 17,000. I mean, we're not allowed to gather in groups of more than 50. Yeah. But but okay. (laughs) Or even a couple like hundred in an outdoor space. I get it, but still, that's, yeah, that you're still putting yourself at a huge risk. Wild. Um, all that aside, were you happy to see the NFL back on the field? Did you have any feelings about that at all? Yeah, I'm glad football season's starting. I know it's it's going to be like all the other sports was just a very weird season because yeah. of COVID and stuff that's going on. I'd be very interested to see if it finishes. I know Andy Reid in that mask, he looked so frustrated and so (laughs) uncomfortable. And it was just like, oh, I don't know if he's going to make it all season. (laughs) Well, yeah, because they're not, are they following the bubble? They're not doing doing a bubble, but not a bubble. Home stadiums. Um, Yeah, so I I assume they're doing like daily testing and I, 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 you know. I don't know. That, that, that's good. That's going to be the hard. I mean, this is, it's a, it's a great test. It, it sucks that we're using professional athletes to, to uh, test out a theory to see if we really need to do this. If, but yeah, it's going to be really hard because all it takes is one or two people to get sick and the entire season is done. Yeah. I, I mean, I honestly, I do not know, you know, if a star quarterback comes down with COVID, you know, it might, I, but there are so many people on a football team. It takes so many people to keep a football team up and operational. The people who take care of the equipment, the trainers. I, it's, it's wild to me. I, I assume that the teams are trying or at least asking their employees to use very strict protocols in their personal lives. Um, but I don't know. The whole thing's crazy to me. But I, I too, was happy to see football back. I have become less and less a fan of the NFL the last couple of years for a lot of different reasons. I've been kind of trying to wean myself off football because I feel guilty about how many little kids are getting into football as, like, a way to get them, like, a better life when we know that a lot of them are going to get concussions and destroy their brains. Yeah. Um, So I have a lot of mixed emotions about the NFL these days, but I'm happy to see any kind of sign of normalcy. And so I'm glad the NFL is back. The Chiefs look really good. Yeah. Now the other issues, like I I was hearing all the, you know, about the booing and how people were still upset there, uh, you know, talking about like, why, why are you, um, you know, playing the black national anthem? Why are you making it an issue? And it's like, okay, so obviously it wasn't an issue about kneeling with this with the uh, national anthem. You obviously have an issue with what's going on and with like African Americans. Like yeah. you're being now blatantly right. honest that you have a problem with this. It was never about the flag. It was never about the anthem itself. It's about any it's about the fact, and we've talked about this a number of times, and I don't even want to waste our 
breath getting into it too much again, but people who think that athletes don't have a right to use their platform to voice opinions on social issues. Well, here's the thing, right? Like you're buying a product from the NFL. And if this is the product that the NFL chooses to sell, either don't fucking buy it or go and enjoy it and shut your mouth. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's what it is. Like the NFL has chosen to incorporate these elements into NFL games. And they did it because their workforce, the players, the people whose talent is what keeps the entire system going, want it, right? I mean, there would be no NFL without the players themselves. All, mm -hmm. There are a ton of other pieces that go into it, of course, but at the end of the day, it's the player's talent. That's what they're selling, and that's what you as a person going to watch a football game are buying. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the view, the right to view this. So, of course, they should have input into what the product is and what the NFL is, quote unquote, selling. And so if you as a fan don't like it, then stop buying their product. But you don't get to you don't get to buy half the product. Right. Like you can throw away the other half. And by that, I mean, go out and buy a hot dog during the anthem if you're that worked up about it. Right. But they're not going to stop it for you. You're choosing to buy the product and it's a whole package. You don't get to dictate what's in it. Yeah, and you shouldn't limit someone for what they're trying to do. Yeah. Just like so, if you're trying, if you see something going, you know, if in your place, your, your work or whatever, you see something going on and you want to say something about it, you shouldn't, you know, limit yourself or just say, no, don't say anything. Just shut up and do your job. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, so... No. We've talked about this a few times. I don't think these people even deserve to continue to hear our thoughts about it. But <laughs> essentially, I think maybe now's not the time to be going to football games to begin with. But more, than, more importantly than that, like racism needs to be over. Like we no longer need to walk on eggshells to make racists feel comfortable. You don't like it that we're out here talking about social injustices and racial injustices and racial inequalities. Well, guess what? I don't fucking care what you like. You know, <laughs> racism yeah. has been ruling this country forever and now it's time to stop bowing down to it and try, you know, I'm just, I'm sick of the whole thing. So fuck the fans that are booing. I hope that nobody gets sick at an NFL game, but we all know somebody's going to, I don't know. I, I, I throw my hands up at the NFL, but I'll watch a couple of games this season. Hopefully I'll enjoy them. And hopefully all the other stuff that's going on, like people getting sick at football games and racist people booing and being babies about it on social media won't ruin it. Yeah. I mean, I give props to the NFL. They're trying to, you know, kind of go back on what they were saying, you know, like I bet you they feel really bad now about not supporting Colin Kaepernick and everything that was going on. So yeah, they're trying well, to make amends again. That's right. And they're, they're evolving. They're trying. They're, they're, yeah, they're evolving. They're, they're learning. That's right. I give them credit. And I appreciate that. Positive steps forward. It also, we should mention also for, I think I, what I believe is the first time ever fans were told they would not be allowed into the stadium if they were like, doing face paint like native american style face paint or like wearing headdresses or anything like that at the chiefs game that is also a positive step forward yeah yeah so it's like yeah. the little baby steps but yeah it, it's nice to see sports evolving and you know sports and sports stars using their platform for 
good. Right. And if you want more evidence that these people are not patriots, they're racists, they also started like violently doing the tomahawk chop because they were so mad that they weren't allowed to show up <laughs> addresses. Like it has nothing to do with patriotism. They're just racist and they want to be allowed to keep parading around being racist. Oh, no. Yeah. And no, that's not <laughs> that that's not acceptable. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that. Welcome back, NFL. Yay, NFL. All right. Uh, on an uplifting note, <laughs> Uh, what do you have on your uh, topic for inter- the intersection of sports and queer? All right. So in honor of the just past 19th anniversary of September 11th, uh, we are going to remember Mark Bingham. Mark Bingham was born in 1970. He grew up as the only child of a single mother. In high school, Bingham began playing rugby. He went on to play college rugby at the University of California, Berkeley. In 1991, he was a member of Cal's team that won the Rugby Collegiate National Championship. After college, Bingham continued to play competitive rugby at the highest levels. Eventually, Bingham came out as gay and stepped away from rugby for a while. Later, Bingham discovered the San Francisco Fog, one of the first ever gay rugby teams to have been founded. He played with and helped coach the Fog for the rest of his life. Mark was also instrumental in setting up New York's Gotham Knights, another gay and inclusive team. Mark was a passenger on United Flight 93 on September 11, 2001. The plane was hijacked by terrorists as part of the 9-11 attacks, but unlike the other three planes hijacked that day, it never reached its intended target, which is thought to have been a major landmark here in D.C., Passengers battled with the hijackers and the plane crashed in a field near the town of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Thanks to flight recorders and phone recordings, Bingham is now known to have been one of the leaders of that heroic group of passengers. Bingham lost his life along with 39 other passengers and crew members, taking the total death of the attacks on September 11th to 2,977. And that doesn't include the countless people who have died since 9-11 as a result of exposure to the work sites and the cleanup efforts. Mark Bingham was 31 years old when he died. Mark Bingham had a lasting impact on many people, including many people who never knew him. After Bingham's death, a handful of his teammates got together and developed a plan to honor his legacy. The previous May 2001, the then brand new International Gay Rugby Association had hosted a 15s tournament in which Mark Bingham and his teammates from the San Francisco Fog played. In 2002, that tournament was renamed the Mark Kendall Bingham Memorial Tournament. The tournament was held in San Francisco with eight teams participating. Under the banner of the International Gay Rugby Association, the tournament, now known by its shortened name, the Bingham Cup, has been held every other year ever since. What began with just a handful of gay and inclusive teams has expanded rapidly. In 2018, 78 teams from 20 countries traveled to Amsterdam to play in the Bingham Cup, making it one of the largest 15s rugby tournaments in the world. 2018 also marked the first year that women participated in the Bingham Cup. Unfortunately, the 2020 Bingham Cup had to be postponed, but is expected to be played next year in Canada. 
In 2002, Mark was honored posthumously as a co-recipient of the Arthur Ashe Courage Award at the ESPYs. In 2004, singer Melissa Etheridge dedicated the song Tuesday Morning to Bingham's memory. In 2013, a feature-length documentary about Mark's life and his relationship with his mother, called The Rugby Player, was released. In 2015, the Mark Bingham Award for Excellence in Achievement by Young Alumni was established at UC Berkeley. It's an annual recognition for a young graduate who, within the last 10 years, has made a significant contribution to his or her community, country, or the world at large. In 2019, World Rugby made another documentary about Mark's life called Legacy, the Mark Bingham Story. And this year, fellow Cale alumnus Stuart and Josie Schiff created an endowment entitled the Mark Bingham Rugby Back Row Endowment. Schiff said that while he and Bingham never knew each other personally, their commonalities as Cale graduates, rugby players, and back row players as well as Bingham's well-documented bravery on September 11th, inspired the gift. These are only some of the memorials and tributes that have been created in Mark's honor. Of course, he is also memorialized at the 9-11 memorials in both New York and Pennsylvania. So I think it's worth it um, to remember Mark and his legacy and all of his lasting impacts. And also, of course, to every year take a couple minutes to think about everybody that we lost on September 11th. Um, but on a lighter note, uh, Gabe, have you ever been to the Bingham Cup? No, actually, this year was supposed to be my first chance to go to the Bingham Cup. I was going to go with the Scandals. We were planning to go to Ottawa, getting everything ready. And because of COVID, uh, uh, Bingham was canceled this year. But bummer. next year, definitely. Yeah, next year. So I've only made it to one Bingham Cup, um, not as a player, but as a fan. Um, I went in... 2016 to nashville okay and it was everything that it is built to be i mean it's huge there are just rugby players from all over the world it's you know i think they have three different brackets so you've got like um super competitive amazing rugby being played at the highest level and then you also have like at the very social level some pickup clubs that were just like sort of mix match people who showed up without a team to play some old boy sides. So you got to see kind of all different um, skill levels, but also just like people who'd been playing rugby for 40 years and people who were brand new to rugby um, and super organized and super well run for a rugby tournament. I don't know how many rugby tournaments you've been to, but who they're usually <laughs> oh, yeah. They're usually a bit of a hot mess and <laughs> Bingham is not like that. Bingham is like super well organized, super well run. They, they do a really great job and just the parties, like everybody meets up in all different places throughout the like four days that it goes on for. It's just, it's a really awesome experience. And I know that Mark Bingham's mom shows up every year. Oh yeah. That was going to be the highlight this year. Cause she's usually the one that goes and awards the cup. Yep. And so it was going to be her. And I think it was supposed to be uh, Justin Trudeau. They were supposed to give the cup oh, this year. That's a draw. <laughs> yeah. But what is awesome is that, you know, she says, I lost a son to this horrible attack, but I gained a bunch of rugby kids, which is yeah. awesome. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So, you know, I think Mark Bingham, I mean, he was only, you know, 31. I mean, that's great. Yeah. I, I, 
I can't, I can't even put myself in his shoes, but to think like, would I be able to do that? You know, get people together. If you knew exactly what was going on and try to stop the plane from. Yeah. So I've watched one of the two documentaries. I w- I've watched legacy, the Mark Bingham story. And I haven't seen the other one yet. Although I think even the other one, you'll get even, you get even more of like sort of, sort of people's impression of what kind of a guy he was. And, you know, I think part of it, youthful, like arrogance, you almost think that you can take <laughs> on the world. But I also just get the impression, like, first of all, he was like six something, like he was a six tall, four yeah, and a rugger. Tall, so yeah, you can do whatever. Guy, <laughs> strong guy, but also like, you know, he just had a big personality. He was a natural leader. He was not one to sort of sit in the background and wait to see how something plays out. So you know, it, it seems like it really fits his personality that that's what he would have done. Um, and it's impossible to put yourself in their shoes because what we know now is that from recordings and stuff is that a number of people on the planes, on his plane, were having conversations with people on the ground who were telling them that the other planes had hit targets. So they weren't, they knew that like, you know, what the options were. It wasn't as if I think they, at that point, were sitting there thinking that, well, maybe if we just stay quiet and do what they tell us, we'll, we'll safely hit the ground and get out of this. I think like they all had more information than that. So that obviously is a different motivator, but you know, it's a really, um, obviously what they, what they did was very heroic and what they did saved, you know, a lot of lives. Because if that plane had crashed into the Capitol you know, building, kind of- right, which I think most likely it was aiming for the Capitol building. And if it had White crashed House into the somewhere. Capitol building, there would be a lot more people there than, you know, they managed to have it crash in a, in a field where there were no people. Nobody on the ground um, died in that crash, which is a miracle. You know, it's a miracle. So it, it, it's amazing, but... Um, but yeah, I, I do think like everybody should, if you are at all a rugby fan and you can get to a Bingham cup someday, I highly encourage it. It's like one of the greatest, um, fun tournaments that you'll ever get to go to. Yeah. I'm glad that, you know, we're talking about Mark Bingham, his story's still around, you know, he's smashing the stereotype of what it is to be quote unquote, a gay man going out there. He's an actual hero. And, you know, people were always asking, like, is he a hero? Was he a gay hero? Is he just, no, he's just a hero. doesn't matter about who he is. Like, he's just a great person. Yeah, and his mom has become a big advocate for the LGBTQ plus community. And that's, you know, that's really nice. But it is, like, I think an important sort of legacy for him to break down this idea that, like, gay people can't play rugby or wouldn't be athletes because, you know, his friends tell the story in the documentary that, you know, that was something he struggled with a little bit. Like he loved rugby and he played it in college and it was one of the most important parts of his life. But when he was out, out of college a couple of years and he decided he just couldn't live in the closet anymore, his initial reaction was to step away from rugby because even he, he hadn't seen representation or he didn't think he was necessarily going to be able to keep being a rugby player as a gay man. And that is something that he fought against and evolved and helped to form and were instrumental in building two um, gay rugby teams, which at the time there were only like eight in the world, (laughs) which is like a huge deal. And like for that legacy for him to live on, I think is a huge deal. And, 
I also encourage people to watch the documentaries because at least the one that I watched, it was really great. And one of the points that stuck with me is a good friend of his that was in the documentary talked about how kids still come up to him at like the Bingham Cup tournament when they realize who he is and say, you know, Mark saved my life because I would, I thought I would have to either choose between living this life as like an athlete and one of the boys and stay in the closet or, you know, come out and lose that other part of me. And I don't, didn't know how I was going to survive. And Mark's story helped me to realize that I could be both. And like, that's such a great legacy and such a good impact to leave behind. You know, we should all hope that we leave something that meaningful behind for people who come after us. No, yeah, definitely. You never know your own, even your own personal stories, how that might affect someone and make a positive impact, hopefully in their lives. So it's great that we can still remember Mark and keep these stories coming and just try to make the world a little better place. Absolutely. Itchy as it sounds. No, let's, let's try, let's try. And let's obviously never forget um, September 11th and the impact that it had, but let's, you know, try to focus on moving forward and building a better world. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I wanted to say. And <laughs> I thought it was important to, you know, talk about Mark at this time of year. So that's it. And, uh, you know, Gabe, always a pleasure. Yeah. I'm glad we could uh, get together. Yeah, this is nice. This stuff. Nice little chat on this uh, weekend afternoon. So that's this week's Under the Bleachers Roundup of things queer, things sports, and things at the intersection of sports and queer. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to share our interview with Team DC member club, Rogue Esports. Welcome back. We are joined today by Chuck and Miguel from Rogue Esports. I think they're also known as the DC Gamers, but I'll let them explain um, that in just a second. Um, welcome, guys. Do you each want to introduce yourselves and um, let us know who you are and what you do with, with your organization? Well, thank you for having us on. Um, first time in this kind of thing, but I'm very excited to be here. I am Miguel Miranda. I am the, uh, Chuck likes to use the word commissioner. I'm still getting used to these nomenclatures. Um, of Rogue Esports, also one of the founding members of DC Gamers. Um, and you, so Miguel, are the DC Gamers um, a separate group from Rogue Esports, or are you now combined into one group? Um, that is a good question. So I guess that involves a little bit of background as to like who DC Gamers are, is, were. Um, uh, DC Gamers is just a group of nerds, enthusiasts, um, geeks, and so on that uh, wanted to have a bit more of a human personal connection because uh, I don't know how many people out there are used to the gaming world, but a lot of it's being, a lot, especially nowadays, is done behind a screen. Um, and what we wanted to do with the group was to make it more than just that screen, like, face-to-screen thing, but more of a face-to-face kind of uh, relationship development. Um, And we started about three years ago um, in COBOL, rest in peace, um, as just a couple of of, uh, like-minded gamers um, who wanted to just like hang out. As we grew and as we developed, um, we 
started expanding our horizons. Like little by little, we started adding board games, uh, dance games. Um, and as we kept going, we started adding more and more kind of competition aspects, kind of to the point where um, our community, as is gaming community, is probably a lot of other social communities, kind of shifted into two groups, right? The more casual group, more casual gamers, um, who are there really more to like hang out and like try some things out and meet with, up with friends versus those who are a lot more into whatever particular genre we were talking about. So a lot more of the more competitive gamers um, who are re like really into the tournaments and like the excitement of like winning that prize. So we both Rogue Esports and DC Gamers are kind of are the same group just with different masks where one would be cater more towards the casual gamers um, the other one would be catering more towards the more competitive gamers. Yeah, so Rogue Esports is um, more tournament-based and competition-based, whereas the DC Gamers side of things is more um, casual and informal. Exactly. To add to this, too, and hello, my name's uh, Charles Roth. Um, you can call me Chuck, of course. Chuck. Uh, my uh, experience with DC Gamers is that I'm actually still fairly new to the DC area. And growing up, of course, um, I was very much involved in games. You know, I wasn't necessarily out. I was very um, reserved and sheltered in a very reserved area, you know. But when I met DC Gamers, we actually really have a wonderful environment full of all kinds of people of all kinds of different backgrounds that are really just engaged not only within video games of all different kinds of um, genre, but as well as uh, just enjoying each other's company, you know. Can you all tell us a little bit about the structure of esports? Like, how exactly is the season going to work, and what games do you all play? <laughs> that is a very fun question you just posed. Um, so the whole concept of esports in on itself is fairly new. Because what we're trying to do in the co-competitive scene um, is more like you know, get people introduced into the whole idea and concept of esports. Like at first, I think our original, our initial plan is to gather a couple of, uh, to pick a couple of games, a couple of popular games within our community, and then focus on developing our participants in those games, and then each season building off those experiences and. Thank you, Miguel, is that one thing that we're looking to do to activate our membership even more so is actually after our inaugural season is to also get feedback from membership to also kind of more so depict the games that we play in the future as well. Unlike, uh, say, for instance, examples like dodgeball, softball, of course, you play that one sport, but for esports, you have so many different options. So we really look forward to activating and giving the uh, membership a uh, voice when it comes from season to season two. It's going to be fun. Agreed. Okay, and so forgive my ignorance, but so does Uproar have gaming cons consoles there or are people bringing their own gaming console? How does that work? What is happening uh, right here is that when we actually do DC Gamers, uh, let alone eSports, is that we have a lot of people that are actually jumping right in to help and chip in in all kinds mm -hmm. of different ways. Uproar themselves, they um, they help us with equipment. We do mm -hmm. bring a lot of equipment in on a volunteer basis, but we're also looking at some options in here in the near future upon um, what we can do to kind of get some stuff there in the longer term, you know. Yeah, Uproar has been very flexible and very generous with their equipment. Um, whenever we had our events, 
they would provide all the TVs, sound systems. Um, Eric Wood, who uh, Charles mentioned before, who was also uh, part of the founding group, um, has a couple of different PlayStations, Xbox, and Switches um, that he also helps uh, to bring in um, to run our game nights. So we try and make it so that when we were at, when we were at Uproar, that unless people wanted to, that they wouldn't have to bring in the system. All right, quick question. Since we're talking about local sports, are you all Washington um, Justice fans? Or have you heard of the Justice? Oh, yes. 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 <laughs> I, went to, I went to their um, inaugural uh, gaming weekend um, at the Wharf when it came out. It was so cool. I, I have pictures on my Facebook and whatnot, and I actually got to meet with uh, the – the one of the agents for them and i was like near the front row when like the team was coming out um it was it was really cool all right also side note who's your favorite character in mario kart <laughs> uh inklings oh more yeah. of a thematic choice because <laughs> i can generally ride with anyone but i really like the inklings like they're reactions their facials the way that they play is just fun i could make a joke but i'm not going there <laughs> uh can somebody tell me what an inkling is <laughs> the um <laughs> i'll answer that the uh, inklings actually come from a recent nintendo game actually called splatoon uh splatoon is actually only about oh i don't know exactly but probably five years give or take that actually started on the wii u where it's kind of like a first shooter, but you, there's different types of uh, tweaks to it where you can kind of hide in your own ink and squirt ink at other people. And it's, it's very cartoonish. Yeah. Uh, it's actually got quite a bit of a fan base to it. So different types of squid characters that are very uh, obnoxious and funny. Oh, they, they're sassy, all right. That fits Miguel perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I, the last uh, video game console I played with any regularity was Super Nintendo in like the 1990s. So yes, it's all it's all a little bit lost on me. I confess. <laughs> no worries. No worries. We have people of all different um, backgrounds when when we were running our gamer event. I think what also drew, you know, part of our people, kind of like what Charles was saying earlier, is just the feeling that you get when you go there like there's everyone's really just there to have a good time um there are different people from a whole bunch of different backgrounds you have science nerds you have english nerds you have um people who are like really into sports but they like like madden or they like smash brothers and i think just because everyone has that commonality of just like liking something in their past like whether it be sonic or the super nintendo or their current like likes like everyone had a commonality that they could just bond over which was really nice so you'll fit right in no worries <laughs> do you guys um do any old school like board games or card games at any of your events or are you strictly video game guys we uh from earlier at the um, beginning of um, DC Gamers, I um, believe it was more so on the video game side, even before I came about mm -hmm. personally myself. But now, no, we're not just strictly video games. In fact, we uh, on the second floor of Up, where we use the tables in the back, and we put all kinds of card games out there, board games, and uh, it usually gets pretty crowded back there. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So, 
Cards Against are, Humanities, yeah. Exploding Kittens, Unstable Unicorns. I can't believe that there's a game called <laughs> Something Unicorns, and I've never heard of it. What is this game? Can you tell me about it? <laughs> oh my god, I love that game. So, um... Do you know any uh, some of those cartoon shirts that people see, that you see of like these unicorns with like uh, uh, chainsaws or like talking about murder or everyone dies and there's like sure, this sure. adorable art style. I have to send it. So they actually have that. Um, the company is called Tea Turtle. Um, they have a card game called Unstable Unicorns, and it is hilarious. Like one of the cards is uh, wasted white unicorn. And it's just like of oh, this girl, like this female unicorn, like holding on to her, um, her high heels, like parting around. And like there's a whole bunch of different types of crazy unicorns and expansions. Like I've gotten, I have every single expansion. Well, it sounds actually, it sounds pretty. Right it sounds pretty great. I'll have to check that out. I, I I'm glad to I'm glad to know that there's a game out there called Unstable Unicorns. So I'm seeing that there's a bunch of different esports leagues that are just starting up around the country. Like even my college back home in Texas just started uh, launched their first esports team. But how important is it to y'all that you started probably the region's first LGBT focused esports team? You know um, that is an interesting question, and when it comes down to that one, for me personally, and Miguel, um, I asked for him to put into this as well is actually to kind of give everybody more options. You know, there are so many people that have so many different interests, that have so many different hobbies, that enjoy so many different activities, you know, that we want to be a sounding board to that. If there's anything that we have that's really common amongst a lot of us is, yeah, some people may game more than others, per se, when it comes to, like, particularly, like, video games. But it's it's giving those options. It's giving that outreach, and it's giving the... Um, the community more of something that they can connect with, you know, and we definitely have that um, group of people and those friends right out here in the DC metro area. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's a really um, important and great thing to hear. Um, so I wanted to ask on a slightly different topic. I know, um, like I said, you guys are a new organization and maybe you haven't fully thought this through yet, but do you have um plans or ideas of events that your organization is going to plan to either hold or participate in outside of the world of gaming, whether they're um, community events or just social events that you want to talk about? Um, I would love to answer that one because, of course, we've been in the brainstorming phase you know, of a lot of different things. And, of course, mm -hmm. a lot of things are coming yet to fruition, you know. But of course, um, not only just what we do within Rogue Esports, but also just under the Rogue umbrella altogether is that we seek to promote a sense of community and also educate about different things. And when we come to these different Rogue events, of course, it is to my intention and actually our intention as a group to kind of bring people in to uh, speak about different organizations, different nonprofits, different causes, all kinds of things like that. And uh, one of the little uh, things that I've stirred around with uh, my cohorts, Miguel and Eric, is this possibility about a, a fundraiser called Smash for a Cause, you know, like Smash Brothers, you know, type of thing. But uh, again, we've not really truly started yet, but we have a lot of different ideas at this point in time. Something mm, else I that no I would doubt. love to do. I'm sorry? No, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to just uh, to add to that, like, 
like Chuck was saying, I'm um, sorry, like Charles was saying, um, a lot of it's still in the planning phase and, you know, smash for a cause, bringing different people to come, uh, to come in and speak about their organization. Um, I also wanted to mention that something that's been on my mind um, is kind of doing outreach to like younger to youth. Um, I can't tell you how many messages I've gotten from either younger gamers, you know, who aren't 21, who can't drink, who were like, I, I love this group. I love the idea of this group. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not of age. Can I still join? Unfortunately, because it's a bar, you know, we couldn't let, we couldn't do that. But whenever I had any like, like smaller events, um, at, uh, local conventions, whatever, like I would meet up with like a lot of these other, uh, kids. Um, so one thing I would love to do is to also have some sort of outreach or some sort of like, um, bit like a, a, a community with like younger LGBTQ youth who are also into gaming. But again, everything is still like in planning stages. We have ideas, but you're still looking at in a way to execute. But they yeah, well, definitely want to. Yeah, no, that sounds terrific. And obviously big ideas are, are where we, we all get our beginnings. So um, I want to congratulate you guys on getting yourself started. It's unfortunate that uh, your venue got shut down before you were able to have your inaugural season. But I know that when you are uh, back out there, it's going to be a huge success. So congratulations to you both and to all your other um, partners in this endeavor. Um, and I want to thank you for joining us for this conversation. It's been a real pleasure, and I hope that people find it informative. Um, before we let you go, I just want to give you a chance, if you have a website or a Facebook page um, that you want to plug so that people, if want, they want more information about your group, they can find you, where would that be? That information can be found right off of Facebook. Of course, we have the DC Gamers Facebook site, or we also have a Rogue Esports one as well. Mm -hmm. I do believe we also have, and correct me if I'm mistaken, a uh, Instagram, and we also have a email list that we uh, have as well. For that one, of course, you would want to uh, email. Uh, Miguel, you want to take it from here? Yeah, um, but you just have to email us at DC Gamers. Zero zero at gmail.com. All right. Well, thanks again and congratulations. Um, appreciate your time and I hope we get to talk to you guys again soon. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of Team DC. For more information about Team DC, please visit www.teamdc.org. We want to give credit to Ralph Elston, a Team DC board member, for the design of our logo. Also, our intro and outro music is provided by DC's Different Drummers Marching Band and was composed by Travis Gettinger. You can always find Under the Bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com, and our podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend so that we can all keep meeting Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC Vice President Laura Freyer and Team DC Board Member for Fundraising Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the host and the participants 
on Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.